With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Jerry, here we are with episode 32 from inside uh, the Legends Room, which uh, makes Colin very happy because the acoustics here are so much better than the Ichiro Room, aren't they? Can't you tell the difference already? I, I, I can tell, other than when my chair starts squeaking and Colin looks like he wants to crawl under this the table. This podcast uh, brought to you by WD-40. And so we need, we need a little for a couple of the, uh, the very uh, comfortable chairs here inside Safeco Field. Uh, well, Jerry, it's been a long time, man. We have not done this for some while. Your travel schedule, my travel schedule, it has now finally come together. We are here face-to-face at the ballpark. And first of all, a walk-off Bach, Jerry? A Bach-off? There haven't been many of those in Major League history. What was your thoughts when you saw that happen? You know, my thought was I, I've seen this once before in the minor leagues. I've never seen it in a Major League game to the best of my knowledge. And, you know, I went home thinking, boy, that's got to be rare. And by the time I got home, my son-in-law informed me that it is even rarer than a perfect game, that there had only been 21 of them to date in, in Major League Baseball history, which I think there have been 24 perfect games. So it, it was uh, – it was something along those lines, like maybe one of the rarest of all plays you'll see in the big leagues. It's remarkable. And we were commenting uh, yesterday on the broadcast. I just can't imagine from an umpire's point of view when you have so many things. And I'm sure an umpire tries to streamline their thought process and be locked in on the few things that they need to be. But let's face it, extra innings, bases loaded, full house, over 40,000 fans for sure in the ballpark. Everything's rocking. And then you see a knee basically quiver and then you have the conviction to put your hand up make that call and you have just ended the ball game it was the right call to make but pretty impressive from an umpiring standpoint I would think you know most of the times as crazy as it is as, as critical as we can be umpires get it right most of the time and you know the first base umpire in that situation has been has been taught or or along the way it's been ingrained in him this is his job is focus on the pitcher in that moment the th- not so for the third base coach who has other responsibilities or the guy that's out in the middle of the field. But the, you know, the first base umpire got it right. And I think the, the uniqueness of the situation with so much chaos and that the jab step, which was, let's call it a, a, like a body lunge on Justin Turner's part, made the, the floro, the pitcher, look a little bit more active than he actually was with his body because he was surprised. So when he stepped off, his body language after he stepped off was probably just as damning as the, the moment when his, his knee quivered. Which, by the way, not to digress too much before we get into it, but I, I found this to be hysterical. Uh, earlier last week, Ben Zobris got tossed from a game for arguing balls and strikes. And when he was asked by the media inside the clubhouse of Wrigley Field what it was that he said to the home plate umpire, he said, <laughs> he said well, I told him, this is why we need an electronic strike zone. <laughs> like, did you think that maybe would get you tossed? I just I, the honesty for his first ever ejection, by the way. Zobris had never been run from a game, and so I think if you're going to get run for the first time, just go right to the top. Just tell the umpire he's terrible, and we need a digital strike zone to make this happen. 
There's, and, and he would not be alone in his thinking on that matter. But as I, I mean, Ben Zover is one of the nicest guys yeah. in the big leagues. It's a, as, as, like as a deeply good like religious man. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so, so if that's the most offensive thing you could say to an umpire, I guess he, he nailed it. Well, that was great. Even he was laughing at it. Well, we got a lot to talk about on uh, episode 32 of the wheelhouse. Remember you can subscribe if you have not already iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. O'Keefe has been hard at getting us there. Uh, first of all, since we have last talked, Jerry, a lot has gone down. Uh, a really impressive, not serious win, a serious sweep of four games in Houston. The first time, regardless of location, the Mariners have swept the Astros in four games. A serious loss in Oakland, uh, dropping two out of three to the A's, and then recently a serious loss against the Dodgers. Uh, where do you kind of put the state of the Mariners right now as they welcome to town the first-place team now in the West, the Houston Astros? Well, you know, our, our four-game set in Houston was – now looking back on it, absolutely critical because for the most part over the last 50 games, we've played about 500 baseball. And and at various points in time in there, we just have not played well at all. And it seems to me that each time it appears we've hit a new bottom, this group finds a way to, to bounce and, and we bounce just a little bit higher the next time. And we were coming off what I think was a season low when, when we really had a couple of ugly losses in Texas. And we rolled into Houston and took it to the Astros. And I don't think anybody was expecting that. And, and when I say anybody, I mean the, the, the national media, the fan base, and probably the logical thinking group in our clubhouse. They're, they're not really thinking. They're, they focus on one game. And when we swept them, including, you know, hitting the home run to tie the game off their closer, and so many positive things came out of Houston. And then we took it into Oakland, and almost as quickly as we gained that momentum, the the momentum left us because now we've got James Paxton getting hit with a line drive. And and just when you think the, the wheels are starting to get on the track and, all right, we're going to go on our next big roll uh, obviously, it's going to be much more difficult to do without packs in the middle of our rotation. But I felt like the momentum went uh, went from sky high leaving Houston to just the opposite. And if not for what I think is you know one of the many underrated great outings by Mike Leake, uh, Mike Leake's outing in Oakland on our getaway day, I think is what made that road trip feel like like we had a really good trip. Six and four in any 10-game stretch is awesome. I'll take that over and over and over. But it winds up that we needed a a magical four-game sweep to make that work. We need to do a little better than that. Since you mentioned the word momentum a couple of times, this is, it's interesting you say that because Mike Blowers and I were talking about this a week or so ago. You know, the famous adage in baseball is momentum is only as good as your next day starter, right? Even if you have an incredible win today, if your starter tomorrow gets shelled, the momentum is gone. Momentum is different in baseball, right, than it is in the other sports. How do you go about looking at momentum, defining it in this sport, and, of course, getting it and hoping to sustain it? You know, the the scientists among us don't believe it exists, uh, and and I think momentum is very real, particularly in baseball, more so than the other sports because it's played every day. We line up and we play every single day, and and that means emotion matters for something. That means belief matters for something. You know, we can talk about the twelfth man, so to speak, in the crowd. The the crowd, a baseball team's energy uh, that's driven from the crowd is very real because it's happening every day, and you feel that the momentum build, and it's it's a it, momentum is a belief. It's it's knowing that you can come back when things get down. It's feeling a degree of confidence when you line up that no matter who's on the other side and on what day you, you've got this. 
and we had it leaving Houston. Our guys were on top of the world, and you know, and, and I don't think it entirely left us uh, leaving Oakland because again, that the, the game thrown by Mike Leake brought it back to a degree, but. Suffice to say, this past weekend against the Dodgers, it left us a little short in the momentum category. And, and now we need to go back and, and, and find ourselves again, which is that's the baseball season. It's ups and downs. It's, it's peaks and valleys. And, you know, the, the real trick is to try to figure out how to stay on an even keel as, as, as best you can and, and not allow the downward momentum to suck you into the vortex and just wait until that next positive thing happens and ride the crest for a while. When you look at now through the rest of the regular season, right, 13 games combined, the Mariners will play between the Astros and the A's, the two teams ahead of them. The Astros right now, as we record this before game one against Houston in first place by one game after uh, winning yesterday in Oakland. When you kind of look at the calendar, right, you look at the series coming up, and it's not easy for the Mariners. You go on the road, you'll play a very good team with postseason aspirations in the Diamondbacks. Uh, the Padres are a last-place team, but it seems like their bullpen has been pitching very well as of late. And then, of course, you'll go on the road. You'll be seeing Oakland again. So, as you, I mean, you know this better than I do, it's not an easy path. And even the teams that you have in the division have played the Mariners tough, right? The Angels and the Rangers, who are seemingly out of it. But the Rangers are scoring more runs than everybody right now, it seems like. Uh, how do you go kind of looking at it from a realistic standpoint, saying to yourself, like, realistically, the Mariners can only afford to lose fill-in-the-blank number of series, uh, but you have to be realistic about it. I mean, how is it that it's approached without the, if you're one of the players saying, well, it's a one-day-at-a-time type thing? You really do have to focus on one day at a time. And, you know, through the course of the 162-game season, you, you constantly view it as series. Let's win this mm-hmm. series. Let's win this series. And, and I suppose to a degree you go into September thinking the same thing. Let's win this series. But there comes a point, uh, and, and we might be closer to that point now than you usually or typically would be in the third week of, of August, you just start sprinting, and, and it's day by day. And, and you focus on today's game, and then we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And that is the mentality of a manager. That is the mentality of a coaching staff. And, it, and it's the mentality of the 25 players. You can't play like that for 162 games. You, you'll, you'll wear yourself out. But one of the wonders of roster expansion in September <laughs> is that it allows us more bodies. You and, can sprint a little yes, harder. Yes, exactly. Sprint <laughs> harder because when we need to, you know, Andrew Romine will come in and throw an inning in a, in a down game or, or we can get some of the starters off their feet in a, in a game where maybe we are losing by more than we'd like. When you uh, turn the page to this Astros series now, they are still shorthanded. It seems like they will be getting Altuve back at some point. Uh, was there something in particular that you saw in those four games in the sweep that you would like to see, except for, the, of course, the final result? Uh, but there, was there a common thread in those four games that you're hoping to see repeated in these three? I, I thought it was our focus, uh, particularly our focus against Justin Verland or against Garrett Cole. I, Garrett Cole was sticking it to us. It's but we stuck with them, and you know we did not we did not lose our focus. We continued to have quality at bats, even though we, the punch outs were piling up, which are going to happen against guys of that ilk. We, we we maintained a focus and had a plan. And as soon as we got base runners and had the ability to create runs, we did it. And you know that requires big at bats that are usually coming from from the big names in your lineup. And for us, it's the Cruises and the Canoes and the Hanegers and the Seguras. Those are the guys that generally do it. 
But what happens for us, for the Mariners, when we get on a roll, it, it's it's when we are getting contributions from the Denard Spans and the D Gordons and the Ben Gamels, and when those guys are and the and the like you saw in Houston, the 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 home runs from Mike Zanino, from Ryan Healy. It's when it's happening up and down. For too, too long, we were so reliant on Mitch and Nelly to do something, and not a lot was going on otherwise. Now I feel like we're getting back to some consistency in the ABs, and what I'd like to see in this series is the same kind of focus we had when we were in Houston, where all of our hitters, one through nine, are putting together that grinder at bat, just one after the other. Speaking of Ben Gamble, some roster moves for today. Can you tell us about them? What an awesome segue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll tell you about them. We are bringing Ben Gamble back. We Here over the course of the next 10 days, we expect only to see one left-hand starter, uh, I believe Robbie Ray, in Arizona. Other than that, we are looking down the barrel of a lot of right-hand pitching. So bringing Ben back and, and getting maybe a little bit more of an offensive infusion when we know, again, September 1st is – just around the corner I think we've got nine games so it truly Guillermo will be out for nine games and you know we will then be able to go back out and get him and it's it's not been a great offensive year for Guillermo and he continues to play really good defense and I'm very glad he was with us in Houston otherwise that that is one win that maybe wouldn't have happened an incredible catch awesome catch and you know, G is a, a big part of our team, but we feel like here in this next stretch of games, Ben just gives us a little bit more offensive juice, and, and we're glad to get him back on the club. And Gene Segura is back. Gene Segura, the, the latest Mariner to, <laughs> to spawn new youth. <laughs> yeah, Gene had, uh, for, I guess for the second time in, in about 12 months, is an, uh, a new child for the Seguras, and uh, baby born on Friday night, and Gene took the weekend on the paternity list, which... Makes him the second in the month to yeah. to uh, to leave us for three days, but in, in Gene's case, thrilled to get him back because he was smoking hot again right before he he left to go be with his wife and family, and it, none too soon could we see him back near the top of our order, rifling off the three four hit nights like he threw together a handful before leaving. So. Thrilled to get him back. Well, congrats to the Segura family and the Seeger family as well. Who Correct. Had uh, uh, their third child earlier in the month. Let's talk a little James Paxton. It looked like a maybe a small step, but a step nonetheless in the right direction for a James who did some some soft uh, tossing uh, yesterday. What's the plan for Paxton? How is he progressing? You know, Pax did throw yesterday. He's going to throw again today and tomorrow, and we'll see where he is. Our expectation when he got hit is that he would miss at least one start. We're not beyond that. We we don't we don't envision him starting in this next series with Arizona. Anything after that is still up for debate. But you know, right now our primary focus is on making sure that he get back to the mound at a hundred percent or as close to that as you're going to get at this time in the year. And I'd say the great likelihood is that somewhere in San Diego or Oakland, we could start talking about James Paxton re-entering our rotation. And again, like with getting Gene back, it, it, that is a huge step for us. You know, James is such a big element in our rotation, along with Mike Leake, Marco Gonzalez. These guys have been so consistent throughout the course of the season. And now as we are kind of at, teetering here in August, we need to, to make sure that our starting rotation reestablishes all the good things that we've done for five months that led us here. Obviously, the decision was made to give Marco Gonzalez a little bit of a breather that had to happen. You and I have been talking about this on this platform 
seems like for a long time now, and we actually saw it put into work. Uh, what does Marco do to obviously stay fresh, but also uh, not have uh, the, the pitch count during his time away from an actual major league mound uh, climb? What does he during, do during this down period? You know, Marco's one of our hardest workers, and uh, he's, he's always, it's in the weight room. He's taking care of his cardio, making sure that he's in good throwing shape. He, I know he's thrown at least one bullpen, lower intensity bullpen where you're not geared up getting ready for a start that's going to happen in two days. You're just out there working on delivery, working on release point, and keeping keeping your, your shoulder joint loose and ready to pitch. So it's let's call it a, you know, a, a working vacation, so to speak, just for a couple of days. But more than anything else, by pushing Marco back and, and making his next start the last in this series against Houston, with the way our off days are positioned – that, that allowed him seven days off between his last start and this. It allows him six days off between this next start and the one to follow. And then, and then the next will happen on a normal five-day run. So he'll only start three games in 21 days. And, and the, the off days in the schedule allowed us to do that. And it also allowed us to set those games up to where those starts were happening against the Houston Astros in San Diego and and in Oakland. So it's a it was it was not accidental that we were able to set them up that two of the next three starts would be on longer rest and still against opponents that we feel like in head to head we need to start beating. Mitch Haniger is really riding the wave up right now as this season is uh, nearing an end or at least beginning to. He's been one of the most productive hitters in the month of August in the majors. The last couple of weeks he's been a 350 hitter with some serious damage. He went into yesterday's game leading all hitters with 10 doubles in the month of August. Uh, what is it right now that is working so well for Mitch? Well, Mitch, when Mitch gets his timing right, he is a force. We've seen it at various points during his two years here with the Mariners. We, we saw it last April and then again this April. We saw it at the tail end of last year, and, and now we're starting to see it again. He is Mitch is one of our more well-conditioned players. I think he's less fatigued than most guys that go through a season because of the way he takes care of his body. And, and we're seeing the benefit of that in, in a big way. More important is that, you know, while Mitch has done a very consistently good job of taking his walks, you know, it, his bat will go quiet or cold like any other hitter in the lineup. But he maintains that, that on-base threat because he's willing to take the walk. And then when his bat heats up again, the numbers really start to pop because he never let himself drift too far away from his skill set. So whereas other guys may lose 50, 60, 70 points in OPS over the course of a slump, an extended slump, Mitch may actually slump with the bat, but he doesn't lose the, the OPS points in that way. It's, it's been a much more gradual decline for him because he takes the walks. Does that speak more to his discernment at the plate? Does it speak to his swing in terms of the actual peaks and valleys? How do you judge that? You know, Mitch has an unusual swing by the standards of what we've historically or traditionally viewed in baseball. Part of the appeal that initially led us to Mitch was understanding that he had undergone a swing change, that he created more elevation with his new swing, a lot of it by getting into his legs. And you can see the way Mitch's lower half works in his swing is just different than most of the guys on our club. And, and, you know, and, and I would say many of the guys in the league – 
So as a result, we're from a coaching perspective, we're maybe a little behind the, the eight ball, so to speak, in our ability to reach him when he is when he's not going as good with the bat. So oftentimes, Mitch winds up being his own best hitting coach, and and we'd like to believe that we can teach all of our players to be their own best hitting coach. But Mitch actually is, and I, I think it's he knows his swing, he knows he knows what his swing is about and how he gets there, and he has coaches in his life that he can lean on to help him. And, you know, so it's partly about his swing. When the timing is off, it's hard for us to tell that the timing is off or he's just missing because everything that gets him there is so different than what we've visualized in our lives. So we're still trying to learn his swing and how it works. It's much easier to see on video than it is live. But, you know, when, when Mitch gets hot, you, and the, that's usually when the ball starts ringing through gaps and over the fence, and the approach has always been super steady. And for a guy to, to be in his second big league season and have really never varied too far from that 850-ish OPS has been remarkable all season long. Without getting too deep in the technical weeds of a swing, can you explain a little bit more about his lower half, his legs, and how it's different than other guys? Well, Mitch does, you know, as in in the old days, we used to call it diving. You know, Mitch dives into the plate, gets into his legs in a different way. Most hitters for 150 years were taught to stand tall and swing down to the ball. And the, the old adage used to be swing down to it and up through it. The, the, the new school of thought, you know, the elevate and celebrate school of thought is get into your legs and allow for some crunch. Down, down low, and this is I'm, – I'm not smart enough to get too far into the technological <laughs> leads, but you, you want to crunch or squat into that lower half and create the, the, the first move up with your swing instead of the first move, at least to your emotion, being down. I think you could argue that the first move was always up, but now that first move is really up. You just saw it play out in its, in its greatest form here with the Dodgers for the last three days. They have seven of the nine hitters in their lineup. Max Muncy and, and Cody Bellinger and Justin Turner, all of these guys have that, that Jock Peterson, have that lift and, and, and loft in their swing. Mitch does that, and, and he did it himself. He went and, and worked with private coaches. He knew he needed something different, and he recreated that type of swing. And I, it's far from me to tell him it, it is working. And, you know, I, I don't know. I wish we could teach others in our system to, to do the same things that Mitch is doing because it's, he is maximizing the potential in his bat in a, in a way that maybe for 150 years we in baseball didn't quite see. And now we're seeing it play out in front of us. And count me for one, and the Mariners as an organization as wildly interested in how we can make this more of a mainstream thing for many hitters instead of just a few. This is not a fad. Not a fad. This is, uh, I mean, there's, I, I, I think I've mentioned, I was talking to, uh, to one of our, our executives, Joe Boringer, who is a special assistant to, to me uh, here with the, the, the Mariners. Joe has been this with This is me. MIT Joe Boringer. MIT, MIT Joe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's well. Joe, he has jokingly told me many times that he's 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 done a lot with his degree. And you know, Joe is Joe's really sharp. He understands things. He's perceptive. He's been in the game for thirty years, and he's seen it from a lot of different angles. And he said to me this morning, you know, I feel like we are presently in the the 
revolution with major league or professional coaches that we experienced as a front office group 20 years ago or 25 years ago with the the sabermetric revolution so the moneyball era so to speak that that kind of took the world by storm 18 20 years ago is now what's happening with some of the nuanced velocity training for pitchers with with the new swing changes and and elevate and celebrate type mentality for hitters this is the revolution for coaching to what or, or I guess this is to coaching what what sabermetrics were to that that moneyball front office revolution and I think he's spot on it was it was a brilliant thing to say which sometimes Joe can do <laughs> so in other words I mean if I'm understanding you correctly I mean now it's impossible to think of a front office that does not have that type of influence to it like what the A's created roughly two decades ago Whereas now, from a coaching standpoint, there might be, I don't even, I'm, I'm sheepish to say a number, half, two-thirds of teams that don't have anybody who uh, maybe can preach this new form of thinking that you're talking about with hitting or in some ways with pitching. But needless to say, in call it 10 more years, this will be the absolute norm for every franchise. I think that it will be. I think it's going to be far more mainstream than, than unique. So, you know, we, we have, we have more than a handful of coaches in our system now hitting coaches from Hugh Quattlebaum, who is our hitting coordinator to a variety of coaches at the lower levels of our system that are working with our youngest prospects and, and bringing them up through a system where we do focus on these things far more than, 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 we ever have before it's part of our teaching cachet and I think that ultimately as that's as this generation of player starts to progress through the system or continues to progress and they get to the big leagues and they meet up with the players who are currently let's call it in their 20s and are doing these same things now because they ran into individual private hitting gurus along the side there's we, we can't we can't take coaches who've done one thing their entire lives snap our fingers and expect that they can come up with a with a brand new set of drills and schemes to send this message but we can identify that it's happening and now grow the coaches along with the players as a fellow university of montana alum i thought i'd give a shout out to mariners minor league quality assurance coach have you seen that dustin lind down in peoria has the barrel chain that he is handing out i believe after batting practice sessions just for the guy that does the most damage on a given day but I mean maybe you can shed some light on what he's doing down there you know probably one of these guys that's working with some of the the youngest Mariners prospects ladies and gentlemen drop, I thought he was gonna drop an MIT on us but yeah. no, Montana. I, that's I, where I, I thought he was going and I he went MIT and I thought listen let me help out <laughs> Let's get the a, somebody else out of Missoula the MIT of the <laughs> upper Midwest <That's> right. <laughs> they did put Harvard of the West of their brochure for a little bit and I was like even being there I was like all right, guys, let's cool it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful town, but. No, it's a, Dustin, Dustin is actually one of the, the more unique of our newest employees. Dustin joined our organization for this season and has made a tremendous impact. He's based down in Peoria, Arizona, works with our youngest players as they come through Peoria. We will send players from our full season affiliates back to Peoria to work with Dustin. Uh, he is 
technologically savvy. We, we have a technology now that we, that, that's called the K-Vest. Uh, it's a vest that our players will, will actually put on. Dustin d- does all the data gathering on this uh, as well as instructs them while they're in the cage. He, it's, it's, it's mastering the kinetic chain, connecting the dots in a hitter's swing that, that will maximize the potential of that swing is the easiest way to put it. And, you know, Dustin has a, an, an incredibly perfect background for what we're trying to achieve. He is, uh, he's part physical therapist, part hitting coach, uh, former baseball player and baseball junkie who loves doing what he's doing, is, is really smart and can take the data, put it into, you know, we also get a, a lot of kickback data from uh, TPI where we will put our hitters in a uh, – we will put them on, on sensors and hook them up to 60 motion cameras and, and get a breakdown for how each of the hitters' swing works, knowing how to get to the point where you're maximizing the, the velocity at exit, you know, the power that you're, being, you're imparting through the baseball. Dustin does this for us on an everyday basis, started doing it on a, an everyday basis back in spring training and has quietly become one of the, the newest stars in our, in our group as a result. He's, uh, I, I did not realize that he shared your, uh, and this is mostly because I didn't know you went to Montana. Take, I, take that MIT. Yeah, yeah. I, had, I, had a, that's a, I had a pretty good idea where Dustin was from, but he uh, he's been a huge impact for us. He works he works closely with Hugh Quattlebaum, our our minor league hitting coordinator, and he works closely with the three hitting coaches at our short season and low A levels, is to make sure that we are setting this program you know up for the for the long haul. And you know a lot of our a lot of our players as they've gone back to see Dustin, they, they get hooked on the program, and and he loves doing it. He's very uh, interactive, very savvy in. The, the social media center and make sure that each of these guys is connected and positive and and feels like when they leave that cage they learn something about their swing that day and the, and the results have been terrific for us how did you discover dustin one of the weirdest resumes that has ever come across our, our plate but you know we were we were we are honestly always looking for someone who does it a little differently and the the flags go up or the sirens go off when you see a resume where you think no way does one person do all those things and Dustin Lind had one of those resumes and it came across Andy McKay's desk Andy saw Dustin's Dustin has he posts on social media and when he was working I believe at a rehab uh, a rehab institute in Missoula Montana uh, and and later worked out at another facility in Boise Idaho and is also married to a physical therapist. So this is kind of, they, they, this is what they do. This is the, the dining room conversation. Correct. So he's working by day as a, as a physical therapist. By the way, he's a doctor. And, and, uh, and by night, he's a private hitting instructor working on connecting dots with a swing. And, and he had built up a cachet of players that he had worked with in the off-seasons, minor league and college players who had, had kind of come to him for instruction. And, and he was effectively a holistic 
one-stop shop, taking them from rehab to the cage to, to working them through. He's a certified strength and conditioning coach. So it's, he, we had just about everything with Dustin that, that wanting to know when the hips need to fire and how they fire to breaking it down on video to being tech savvy enough to gather the information and then immediately you know implement it in the teaching uh, of a player in a swing and and from from Hugh to Andy McKay to to Carson Vitale and the people at the minor league levels Dustin has made a huge impact for us and and we imagine we're just scratching the surface because it's it's only a matter of time before we have little Dustin Lins running around and there are more like him and it's a it's been a remarkable addition to the organization I mean, it sounds like in terms of Montana grads he is far more successful than Colin I, I think, and, and clearly, if he's listening to this podcast, it's going to mean something in the neighborhood of a more significant raise than maybe we were expecting. <laughs> he, do, he, does, uh, he does an excellent job. That's collusion on, on O'Keefe's part. He was all over this. Just trying to help out fellow Grizz. <laughs> I, I, I haven't met him personally. came across his Twitter, and then it's been a fascinating follow to see all the stuff that he's doing down in Peoria. And That's very cool. Good ele- find. Elevate and celebrate, but in a very scientific way. You ready for Stump, J.D.? Sure. Now, this is a good one. I mean, a, really. Can I first, before we go, everything that we just said regarding Dustin Lind, if, if you remember this scene in the original Star Wars, these are not the droids you're looking for. You know, yes. For, for other clubs that may be listening to the podcast, <laughs> this, is, this is not the hitting coach you're looking for. It yeah. really is terrible. You, you, don't, you don't want him. This is not your guy. Yeah. It's a, all of that was just yeah. me gushing about a guy who's, eh, he's okay. That's, that's a good point. And, I, you know, the idea that other organizations will be listening to this does make me feel very proud. Wouldn't you say, O'Keefe? Not to both. You've, you've brought it up previously. I you mean, said it's true. Up. That's true. But those are, uh, in terms of, like, other teams' executives, you know, people who have hiring power. I'm, I'm guessing they may be listening through the ears of others. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They, they, hear me, they hear me blow hard, you know, without having to, to yeah, turn Right, off. you're calling them. Uh, they don't have to listen to a podcast to hear you. Well, this uh, this stump JD is uh, very topical. It involves the Little League World Series. Oh, Jerry and I, which is near and dear to my heart. You realize? I, no, I didn't know that. I, I am I am Tom's River, New Jersey through and through. Which, in some way, shape, or form, I, I guess has been referenced as the Little League capital of the world. Well, t- this I mean Todd Frazier helped put Tom's Correct. River on the map with this, right? Now, Colin, I'm, I'm sorry for the Colin noise, Colin. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm line. hitting the table because <laughs> there's, I mean, many, many things have happened in Tom's River. Have I ever told my Tom's River Low League stories? No. Oh, my gosh. Plural? There, I have many stories. How long do we have? By gosh. How long do you have? There's, yeah, <laughs> we, we can hit this at another time. But, yeah, my, my stories coming through Tom's River Little League, I, I will tell this one really quickly, is that um, – Tom's River Little League won the Little League World Series in 1995, a year which I was playing for the New York Mets. They, they brought the Little League team to Shea Stadium to be the honored guests at the, at the game. And the, the team came parading in, the coaches, and I've never told you this. I promise yeah. you haven't. The, the, the team and the coaches came parading in, and, and I'm an enthusiastic fellow. I, I'm, I'm positive by nature. And I, I broke down in front of the team, and I said, I said, Awesome job. I high-fived the guys in the front. I said, you guys are my little league. Now, mind you, at this time, the only player in the history of Tom's River Little League to go on to play in the, in the big leagues, that was me. 
and I'm high-fiving them, and the, the kids are looking at me like, who are you, man? And, <laughs> and you know, the coach just kind of gives me the high-five and then oh, slips on by, and, and the kid in the front of the pack said, hey, dude, where's Todd Hunley's locker? <laughs> and, I, you know, so I, I hung my head sheepishly, and I pointed him in, in the direction. That young fellow, Todd Frazier. Seriously? Yep. That's right. World Series champ. Todd Frazier, hey dude, where's Hunley's locker? I've reminded him of it later now, in life. Yeah, star of the Tom's River Little League. Oh, for All sure. Stars. Now, where did who remembered this? Right, because like I oh, I remembered it. It left you, a scar for the. I'm, I'm, I still feel it today. Yeah, I'm telling you this, you know and I'm fuming. When, I mean, how did you know little Todd Frazier was Todd Frazier when Todd Frazier became Todd Frazier? I told the story that story to Todd Frazier, and he goes. Bro, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. That was me. Because, I mean, his, his famous Little League uh, encounter was when he stood next to Jeter. Yes. So, I'm trying to – so, they, they went all over the place in New York. Oh, yeah. They were everywhere. And and they had – they went – later that offseason, they came to the, the bat dinner, the baseball assistance team dinner, and uh, which was – it's a great function if you ever get the chance to go. And it's a hundred – present or former major league players show up on a fairly regular basis to raise money for a great cause which is former baseball players who maybe came through before the the salaries or the pensions are such as they are today and and baseball takes care of their own so to speak so it's a, it's a pretty heavy dollar per plate deal and hall of famers and autographs you name it if that's your your game it's a great place to go and that same year the tom's river little leaguers came to the the bat dinner where i was at the bat dinner and and they went up to take the the commemorative photo as guests of honor with with a variety of players and i was standing having a conversation with Tom Seaver and Al Leiter. Tom Seaver yeah. again. Yeah. I just Jerry's had a favorite player. If you, don't, if you can't listen to our other 31 <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> I was standing having a conversation with Tom Seaver and Al Leiter. Al Leiter, who is also born in Tom's River, New Jersey. Oh, really? Okay. Did not play at Tom's River Little League. Came through, came through Beachwood Central Regional High School. And uh, we're standing there, and a photographer came walking over, and they're setting up iron benches and getting the the, the – players up on the stage to take this photo and the photographer came over to the three of us and said guys can we get you up on the stage for the photo and uh you know oh yeah and and i'm thinking all right now i'm fixing my tie it's on i'm finally being recognized for my contributions to tom's river little league and and uh you know we took some steps towards the the stage and tom siever was directed toward the far right and and situated there and al was you know toward the far left, and they called Jim Palmer out of the crowd. You know, oh, Jim, can you come on up here? And they situated Jim Palmer, who's a tall and handsome fellow, in the back center. He'd be the first to tell you. And then I got the the handout, oh, Jerry, no. we won't need you for this. <laughs> you know, and I said, ah, oh, this is this is my baseball life, you know. But but uh, great event, and that is uh, the, the Tom's River Little League team, two-time world champs, I believe in 95 and 98 or Something along those lines, and uh, and my suspicion is they haven't won their last. A lot of talent in that region. I had no idea about any of this, Jerry. Sure. By the you way, asked. you brought, you, or maybe you didn't. Well, I, 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 I <laughs> semi asked, uh, but I'm glad they came up. By the way, Jim Palmer. This is one of my favorite pieces of worthless baseball nonsense trivia. Jim Palmer 
walked a run-in with the bases loaded Jerry 13 times in his career. But he never gave up a grand slam. That's the punchline. Yeah. Can you believe that? That's right. Never gave up a grand slam. A guy who pitched forever, obviously a Hall of Famer. And one point, somebody rattled off the names. If I told you this, somebody said, Jim, I'm going to start naming names. And you tell me what these names have in common. And he got like five names into the list of 13. And Palmer goes, oh, the guys that I walk with the bases loaded. There you go. I, I, if anybody's ever talked to Jim Palmer, it wouldn't surprise you at all that that's that he would know that. But it's pretty remarkable, really. But clearly, I think when you read off the first of those traits or, or, or facts. Right. He doesn't. He's not giving in in the moment. He's not giving in, and it's not like Jim Palmer was a ground ball specialist. I mean, he was he was right at high in the strike zone, strikeouts Man, before, and ahead of the times. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, I, I to never give up a grand slam is remarkable. I agree, and but he was uh, very stubborn to not give one up. It sounds like. All right, on to stump JD uh, Jerry. There are three players in the history of baseball to have played in all three World Series. The Little League, the College, and the World Series. Can you name these three players? Little League, College, and the World Series. Uh, would Mark McGuire be one of those? No. No? There's one active player. One player that retired, let's say, within the last uh, 10, 15 years, roughly. And then one from semi-way back. Oh, I'm going to be shooting fish in a barrel. I'm going to say, could, could the... the First of those players, the way back, be Joe Jay. No. No. Then I'm just. Former teammate in college. Of mine? No. I was going to say, I never played. (laughs) (laughs) He transferred? What? (laughs) Maybe he's from MIT or Montana. Former college teammate where they won the World Series, Terry Francona. Oh, yes. So I'm going to say University of Arizona. 1980-ish. He won a World Series where one of his teammates was Craig Council. So it would have been the 1997 Marlins. It's a super obscure, isn't it? 1997 Marlins. I I don't know. I'm, I'm drawing Ed a blank. Ed Vosberg. Oh, I never would have got it. I know. I can tell you another funny story about Ed Vosberg. But, <laughs> yeah. All right, so Ed Vosberg is your, like, semi... One of the great pickoff moves of all time. Really? Ed Vosberg. Okay, good to know. Uh, So that's the furthest reaching. Uh, The guy who retired, like, not that long ago, sneakily a former Mariner who won a World Series with Boston. Former Mariner, won a World Series with Boston. So I, I would have to have Jason Veritek. Yes. There you go. I did not know Tech played in the Little League. I didn't know either. Uh, And an awesome guy. Really? Georgia Tech, is that right? Yep, Georgia Tech. Great college team. That he played on. Jason Veritek, Nomar Garcia-Para, Jay Payton, uh, to name a few. I think they had like six major league players on their their college baseball team. The active player plays for Tom Seaver's team. Well, most notably Tom Seaver's team. Has Northwest roots collegially. Oregon State. Michael Conforto. Nailed it. 
I had no idea he played in the Little League I World Series. I need to brush up on my Little League I know. World Series. That's the thing. Facts. It's like even College World Series knowledge, even to a great baseball fan, is pretty niche, right? And the Little League World Series, I mean, unless you're from Tom's River, you get it, you know? <laughs> but clearly I didn't know enough, yeah. So there's your list. Three guys, Conforto, Veritek, and Ed Vosberg. The, 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 the sad thing, I played in two different spring trainings with, uh, with Ed Vosberg. And, and this never came up? Yeah. Because of the time, it wasn't he would have been the only guy. Yeah. Unless it was pre-97, of course. Uh, all right, well, there you go. Now you know something. Uh, don't, is it better, by the way, when Stump JD is like so wildly obscure that you have no chance at? Dude, that, I, that was the one. I kind of yeah. thought you maybe would know. I mean, I, I, I don't. I have confidence in you, Jerry. Did, did you? Did he really think I might know that? I thought you might Please. know. Yeah, I thought you might know. Wow! Wow! Sorry, I think so highly of you. <laughs> now I don't. <laughs> Uh, all right, listener questions. Starting with the Little League fandom and the tie, I was like, oh, man, Jerry might get a lo- like all three of these. Yeah. This is going to be nice. I mean, I previewed it with O'Keefe before he came in. and I had no chance. I mean, I, I had no chance. Um, but that's, I love it because I'm the one who asked the question. I don't have to answer it. Okay, listener questions. These are some good ones. Um, okay, so we've got Judd who's checking in from H-Town. He's in Houston. Oof. Yeah, I know. But he's a Mariners fan, and he oh. says he loves the podcast. Um, he feels more connected to the team uh, than ever because of the wheelhouse, and he loves the deep dives and stuff like advanced stats and learning about the front office. So, Judd, thanks for tuning in, man. Well, his question is about uh, the waiver wire, especially after uh, the regular trade deadline, so the time period we're in right now. Jerry, can you explain kind of how the process works? He says, I've always assumed that there is an active waiver order, and how does the actual trade happen uh, if a team is interested, the right to refusal? the whole process well I think this one's easy we, we are currently going through it and there's another 11 days of trade waiver period starting the day after the the trade deadline ends so july 31st trade deadline the first trade deadline comes and goes any trade that is made prior to july 31st is is ungoverned the players do not need to go through trade waivers Starting on the 1st of August, all players that are to move need to clear trade waivers. And on a given day, you're allowed to put out, I think, six players is our a limit each day. And we'll put six players a day out. Every single player on our roster will go through trade waivers. Uh, some will be claimed. Some will go unclaimed. As a general rule, the way it works is the guys who have big long-term contracts tend to clear. Uh, and a lot of the guys who are young and controllable tend not to. But there, and then there's always that class that's in the middle, which is where I've firmly made my my baseball hay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, you know, we we have each day we'll send six guys out, and we'll try to spread it out in in such a way that that we have we're active on a weekly basis. But we we will try to maintain no more than three or four claims per day. You put in a claim on a player, and you're free to claim any player that is put on that given day. And if you if you put the claim in, and you are in reverse order of the standings in your league, so for instance, if we were to put in a claim on Colin O'Keefe, right hand pitcher for the Houston Astros, you know we would be the claim position six in the American League. So it would start in reverse order. So nine teams in the American League would have the chance to, to claim Colin before we did. Uh, we would then be the next team. If we win that claim, then we are the only team that can acquire Colin. 
and for the remainder of this 2018 baseball season. You have roughly, let's call it two days, to put together and execute a trade. And if you are unable to execute the trade within those days, then Colin is just simply blocked from going to the next team, uh, it, meaning the, the Astros can no longer trade Colin. There's only one place they can send him. Uh, if the player goes unclaimed, uh, he is free to be traded to any club. And, and now you can have a negotiation just like you did in July. That does happen with a number of players. It happened last year with Mike Leak, with the, the Cardinals, for an example. And we were able to put together a deal with Colin. Uh, two years ago, or, or three seasons ago, we claimed Ben Gamble from the New York Yankees. And we were able to work out a deal for him because we were the team that won the claim. So there are a lot of different ways that you can access or a lot of different types of players you can access, but you are restricted to some of, of the nuances of the, the, the trade wire. The National League will run concurrently, same way. So for us, we would be claim team number six or ten in the American League. And, and if a National League player were coming through, then that player, let's say, is posted by the Atlanta Braves, you know. Uh, then every single team, or we'll make it the Cubs in this case because they have the best record in the National League, uh, every team in the National League would have the ability to place a claim on that Cubs player before it would even get to you know, the bottom of the American League. Right now, the Orioles, the Royals, you know, the, the teams at the bottom of the American League standings won't get a crack at it until the best teams in the National League pass. So they go through the, the entire National League before they come to the American League. So for us, for instance, you may look at a starting pitcher pitching for a good, not great team in the National League who comes across the waiver wire. The chances of us winning that claim are almost zero. So on a given day, strategically, we may not put a claim in on that player because we'd prefer to put claims in on three or four players we think are more likely to get to us. So Because you can only claim as many players as you can fit on your 40-man roster. So each player that you claim, you may wind up getting that player, like happened this year on a couple of occasions where teams were just awarded players, which I've done before in my career. And you have to, A, know that you can fit that payroll, and B, make sure that you have the ability to create space on both your 40 and 25-man rosters, because once you get the player, you have to have somewhere to house them. It's, it's very nuanced, and we actually we have, we have a host of people in the front office, and, and among our group, Justin Hollander, our director of baseball operations, and Tim Stanton, our coordinator of scouting, govern this every day and make sure that, that we're not over the top in our number of claims, that we do have a plan in place in the event that we win players. So how many times does a team put a claim in for a player, the trade is not executed, in that 48-hour period that you spoke about, and nobody ever knows? I would say 10 times a day. Uh, I mean, it's, it's happening every day right now. It, I mean, I, I hate to be quirky. It probably just happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it, is, it, is a, it is a daily event in this time of year. You know, we want a player on a claim this morning. My guess is we will not put together a trade form and no one will ever know. Uh, there is, I would say, for each deal we've been able to do in August, Ben Gamel, Mike Leake, Archimedes Caminero back in the day, Pat Menditti was, a, sure, yeah. was an August trade waiver claim. We, uh, Yonder Alonzo was, a, was a, an August trade waiver claim, albeit a very early one. For all the deals that we've been able to, done, to do, I, I would venture to say 
for each one that we've executed, there have been 10 that we won the claim on a player and it went nowhere. And similarly, we've already had, let's call it, six or eight of our players claimed and we've not even really engaged in a trade talk because we've not thought it worthwhile. That does sound very nuanced. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Uh, our last question is from Daniel in Seattle, and this is interesting. He's curious, Jerry, about the club's level of opposition research, but it, it doesn't sound like Daniel is so curious about how oh, the Astros are in town. Uh, how often do they throw to first base? I think he's more interested in how you look at an opposing team's outlook from contracts to the farm system, uh, consider might what they do to make their teams better, how do you stay one step ahead of it. So kind of the overarching viewpoint, kind of the 10,000-feet look at other teams, maybe especially in your division or elsewhere. Oh, we definitely do it. We, we do it on a, on a daily basis. We definitely make sure it's a focal point of what we do in the off-seasons is setting up our division, our expected standings. You know, we're running projections just like you might see on fan graphs, just like you might see with, with other third-party, you know, any projection yeah. systems uh you know we, we are doing the same thing internally and it, we will do anything from the next one season to the next five seasons projected american league west standings we might do projected american league standings strength of system uh and then maybe at the major league level the 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 likely war value that you're going to be able to carry with your controllable players. You know, we, we can take a look right now. While I can't tell you what we will or will not be able to add in free agency, we already have a fair idea based on normal age regression what our players will be expected to do headed into 2019, 20, and 21. You know, as we plan future payrolls, we want to know where we are in our growth pattern or maybe as importantly, where teams, let's call it the open window. What, what team has an open window of, of highly competitive baseball? I, I can already assure you I can't envision a time where the Red Sox won't be highly competitive. They're, they're just really good. Uh, but there are other teams who are near the top of the standings right now whose windows will close sooner than others. And, you know, we, we have to determine where we are in relation to that group. We can't get so hung up on the team that's directly in front of us in our division. We're, our focus is to make sure that if we are going to make competitive runs, we feel like we are in the top half of the league or the top third of the league in that period of time and then just leave the rest to fate. If we feel like we are below that line, then we seriously have to consider moving in the other direction. We've not yet felt in my time with the Mariners like we are below that line. That's a great question. Great response to Daniel. Thanks for chiming in. We'll wrap things up. We'll, we'll go around the horn a little bit. Uh, we got Dave Baseball coming up on Wednesday here. It's a midweek Mariners matinee, a 110 first pitch against the Astros to wrap up the homestand. And then as uh, crazy as it is to think about, the next homestand will be the second to last one. It begins Monday, September 3rd. Boy, it'll be September by then. That's crazy. And uh, a reminder that tomorrow, uh, Tuesday night here at the ballpark, we are celebrating Women in Baseball Night and the cutoff to buy that special ticket is tomorrow, Tuesday at noon, mariners.com slash women. And with that special ticket, you can uh, join us for the 5.30, essentially kind of roundtable conversation, which should be just terrific. Uh, that'll be uh, on the 300 level, kind of above home plate. Uh, and even if you're in the ballpark without that special ticket offer, uh, you can still watch that conversation, that roundtable up on Mariners Vision. So good stuff coming up tomorrow night. Jerry, it's been great. Thanks, man. Always a blast. 